We are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony. As far as BuzzFeed, which is a failing pile of garbage. Attack of fake news and, and attacking our network. I, I just want to ask you, sir. I'm changing it from fake news, though. Doesn't that undermine? Very fake news. I- this episode of Can He Do That? is dedicated to President Trump's relationship with the media. With comments from Trump like the ones you just heard, it can feel like the press and the presidency are at odds like we've never seen before. But how unusual is this? How has the role of a White House reporter evolved over time? And is the freedom of the press actually at risk? Here to help us figure out the relationship between Trump and the media this week is The Washington Post's esteemed media columnist, Margaret Sullivan. Margaret, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. My pleasure. So there have been a lot of very visible things that Trump has done, like repeatedly attacking the media in his tweets, capitalizing fake news repeatedly. Can you just walk us through some of the specifics that we've seen from the Trump White House that have been alarming or seemingly unusual? Well, everything has been very unusual, (laughs) I would say. So there's been a number of issues. One has to do with access. In that case, um, you know, most of that has to do with who gets the interviews, who gets to ask questions in the briefing room, and who is actually being allowed in the room. President Trump has been actively disparaging the media. One of the most startling things he said, and one of the things that got the most attention for very good reason, is that he said on Twitter that the fake news media, and he named a number of mainstream news organizations, including, I believe, the New York Times and some of the broadcast networks, were, in fact, the enemy of the people. And this was startling because the enemy of the people is a phrase kind of out of the autocrat's handbook. It's something that has a a rich and unsavory history in, you know, fascism and autocracies. So very unsettling to hear this coming from the U.S. president. So one follow-up question to that is a lot of people are saying, why is the media so focused on covering the media? And I would argue that we... That isn't necessarily what we're doing here at The Post, but this is an important story. So I toss that question to you. Why is this so important? Well, it is important because the fourth estate, as we like to grandly call ourselves, is one of the cornerstones of the democracy. And the framers of the Constitution intended it to be a check on power. You know, not to get too civics classy here, but the Bill of Rights leads off with the First Amendment, which lays out that. Congress shall make no law restricting freedom of the press. And that's so it's one of the most important things in our democracy is the role of journalism and the press in holding power accountable. Yeah. And a critical part of that is the White House Correspondents Association. So to learn a little bit more about what it's like to be a day-to-day reporter in the White House press corps, we talked to the president of the White House Correspondents Association, Jeff Mason. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is there's always going to be some tension between the press and the White House that it covers. That's normal. Uh, We've had that under lots and lots of administrations, and we're experiencing that now with the Trump administration, and we'll experience that with whoever succeeds President Trump. But our goal as the association is to develop a constructive working relationship with the press team at the White House so that uh, when we do have conflicts, we can try to resolve them in in a constructive way. That doesn't always happen. There was a time during the Obama administration where they were restricting some pool sprays for with the president just to still photographers instead of the full pool. And that was a flashpoint for us. It's important to us to have the full pool. And that's a good opportunity for me to explain what the pool is. Yes. The pool is the, 
The Travel Pool is the group of 13 journalists who travel and cover the president everywhere he goes. So that's the group of reporters who fly in Air Force One with the president, who go with him when he does something uh, off campus, we say, in Washington, or when he travels abroad. We, of course, the association in particular, pushes for as many things to be open to the full press corps as possible. But realistically, and for space reasons, uh, that's not always possible. So that's why we have the pool. Surely there are times when a president is not happy to have the pool around. And one of those is sort of the more mundane pieces of our jobs, where we go in the motorcade when the president goes out for dinner or goes on vacation. Um, These are things that are not necessarily times when he wants to have reporters tagging along. But it's important for your listeners to know we're not sitting in the restaurant with him. (laughs) We're not laying on the beach with him or his family. We're nearby in case something happens. And we're nearby in case he needs to make a statement to the press if something happens in the world. That's just the nature of public life, that uh, the news moves quickly and world events happen quickly. And the press is there uh, in case there's a need for that. Do you know this fun fact? I heard it on a White House tour. I can't guarantee it's true that it's called the press pool because the briefing room where the press listened to the president speak used to be a pool. I can confirm that there is a pool underneath the briefing room. That is a true statement. It still exists? It's still there. It's not an actual swimming pool anymore. It's it's a place where we have a whole bunch of wires and technological equipment. But it used to be the president's swimming pool, and the briefing room was indeed built on top of it. I can't say whether that has anything to do with why it's called a pool. My guess is that's not the case because the word pool in this case is we pool information with each other and share information, and that's what a pooler does. I want to believe it's about the pool under the <laughs> under the room. I'm going to go with that, go that with version. It. it does exist. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about what it's actually like to you know fly on Air Force One and to be part of this group of traveling journalists, do you are you talking to the president all the time? Is he coming back to say hi? What what are what's that interaction actually like? Sure, it's a good question. So there's a press cabin at the back of the plane, and we often will get gaggles on the plane with the press secretary. A gaggle is another word for a briefing, uh, usually used when it's not on camera or when it's not being televised or filmed. And there are times when other officials from the White House will come back and brief the press. And there are absolutely times when the president comes back to visit, but he's not hanging out with us, I wouldn't say. I've covered two presidents now, President Obama and President Trump. I I know from colleagues who have covered the the beat for decades that different presidents treat that in different ways. I understand President Clinton, for example, would come back and hang out in the press cabin and sometimes try to get journalists to play cards with him when his staff was fed up with playing cards. That's not something that happened with President Obama. Mm -hmm. President Trump has come back on the plane a few times, and that's uh, welcome. A particularly seemingly unusual circumstance we have this year, which is that President Donald Trump has publicly said that he will not attend this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner. I'm sure you could have expected that I would ask you this question. I'm sure you're getting it a lot. But have we seen that before, a president, you know, either not attend or publicly claim that he's not going to attend? Well, he will be the first president not to have attended the White House Correspondents' Dinner um, while in office since President Reagan in 1981. And President Reagan didn't come that year because he was still recovering from an assassination attempt. So it's been decades since the president hasn't come. It's unusual. So even though he's, you know, labeled the media as fake news, as enemies, 
one thing that I guess could be argued, which I'd be interested in your thoughts on, is that compared to some other presidents, in some ways, President Trump is among the most transparent, right? He kind of makes himself readily available in a lot of circumstances. Do you agree with that? Is he in some ways more transparent than, let's say, Obama? Um, I would say in his first month in office that the access for journalists at the White House has been pretty good. Um, really very good in many cases. I mean, there have been lots of opportunities for the press to uh, ask questions of the president. He's held a series of press conferences, some longer than others, but he has taken questions uh, in formal press conferences. He's also taken questions in less formal situations. For example, when the pool is present in the Oval Office or the Roosevelt Room, uh, he'll take a shouted question or two once in a while, and those are all those are all good things. Um, but there have also been times when access hasn't been good. Uh, for example, the president signed uh, another executive order on uh, travel and, and refugees and banning travel uh, from several Muslim-majority countries. And unlike the last time that he signed his first version of the executive order on that, uh, there was not a pool present. We didn't get to take a picture. We didn't get to see him do that or ask a question. And I think that's unfortunate. So what's lost when you don't have press in the room when he signs an executive order? Well, I mean, I think it depends on the executive order. I understand that the White House and the president won't want the press to be present for every single thing that he signs. I'm sure there are lots of things that he signs that uh, wouldn't be newsy. But this particular executive order is very newsy. Um, it was the first one anyway, was one of the biggest stories of uh, his so far short tenure in office. And um, it's a piece of history. And the American people have, we believe, a right to see that. And, um, and we also believe in transparency and the ability of journalists to pose a question or two about the new order and what he hopes to achieve with it. So reporters in the White House Correspondents Association, they come from a collection of different publications. And something that's been going on now is that there's a lot of talk about how journalists and journalists organizations can kind of band together and fight as a unit. That's something that's typically very hard to do because we're also competitors. So what do you make of that that sort of argument? Well, we, we do have a history of banding together in some situations. For example, when in certain uh, lawsuits in which we're trying to make some sort of point or win some points about press freedom issues. There, it's not unusual at all to see a long list of news organizations that might, you know, during the day or the next day be competing with each other, signing on as friends of the friends of the court. In other words, they're going to support this effort to whatever, do whatever it is, open up information or push back against um, some kind of censorship. So there is a history of it. And you're right, at the same time, you know, we compete with each other, so it's it can be difficult to be on the same side. In this case, I think we're probably going to need more of that sort of solidarity than we've seen in the past. Speaking a little bit about the past, we actually spoke with Jane Kirtley, and she is a media ethics and law professor at the University of Minnesota. She explained to us how we even got to this point and what the relationships between the press and presidents of the past have looked like. When did the the concept of a White House reporter make its first official appearance in history? Well, it actually goes back to the 19th century, and I think it really became a thing, for lack of a better term, after the assassination of President Garfield. But if you had to really 
say when did it become semi-official, we have Teddy Roosevelt to thank for that. He started creating something he called a newspaper cabinet, where he would talk to journalists on a regular basis and frequently would essentially try to float trial balloon stories to the press as a way to inform the public about what he was thinking about. Can you tell me a little bit more about the first press conference? From my understanding, it was under Woodrow Wilson. He kind of solidified that that concept. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, I mean, what, what he did was he uh, set up this press conference. Actually, his private secretary set up the press conference. They said, you know, the president is going to be available to look you in the face and talk with you for a few minutes on March 15, 1913. And more people showed up than Wilson had anticipated. He said, uh, I think he was a little dismayed at the thought that he was not going to be able to have the sort of one-on-one or small group conversations he normally uh, would have expected. So they moved it to March 22nd, the next week, and had the uh, conference in the East Room of the White House. At one point, television became an important, prominent part of American culture, and there was the decision made to start televising press briefings. How did that change the relationship between the the White House group of correspondents and the public and also the president and these journalists? Well, it it might be surprising to to some of your listeners today to to realize it's not surprising, I suppose, that this kind of began with Dwight Eisenhower, uh, really the first television presidency we we could point to. But in fact, the early TV uh, broadcasts were not what we're accustomed to today, live and unfiltered. They were actually orchestrated into what some people have called a documentary. Essentially, the White House would go through look at the film, which is what it was in those days, edit it down, and then make that available. But what was made available to TV and radio were basically snippets from uh, the overall press conference. In later years, that was basically rejected as being acceptable, um, seen as basically smacking of the idea of uh, official government-controlled uh, electronic media. And so now we're very familiar with the notion of live coverage that is unfiltered. Yeah, I can't imagine that being a successful approach today, uh, editing the press briefings. One critical question here is, is why is it important to begin with to have reporters following the president around? Reporters are basically with the president or very close to the president at most times of the day. Why does this matter? And are there specific examples in history? You've mentioned some, if there are any others where it's been critical to have the press nearby. Well, I think, you know, it's it's no accident that many of the reporters that are involved in the press pool refer to it as the death watch, because quite realistically, that is one of the concerns, that if something dire were to happen to a president, you would want the news media to be close at hand. It's about being present in the event of a crisis. I think one of the most famous examples of that would be on the day of the attacks on 9-11, when President Bush was reading a book to a group of school children. We knew what happened because there was a member of the press pool there. So I think while certainly it's understandable that someone, especially someone who is new to government, would find it troubling, I suppose, or at least feel like it was an invasion of their privacy to have the press nearby, it really does form an important role, which is keeping the public apprised of what's going on with the president. Right. So I think that makes a sense, sense to a lot of people, you know, why we need the press around. But one question that we often try to solve here on the show is, 
is this something that's actually protected by law, having journalists around all the time? Can presidents just change the rules as they so choose? Can the administration not grant access to specific outlets? What are the actual laws that surround these these ideas? Well, there there is no law decreeing that the uh, president must interact with the press. We're talking primarily of years of tradition and practice, which is not inconsequential because in other contexts, courts have looked at tradition and experience, as, as they often refer to it, to see whether implicitly, at least, a First Amendment right has been created. But we don't really have that kind of a ruling. There have been a couple of cases that have gone uh, through lower federal courts where the courts have ruled that a journalist could not be denied a White House press pass or denied access to um, a press conference based on the kinds of reporting that they do. In other words, you can't have an arbitrary or content-based criterion for denying press passes. You can say, for example, that you have to not be a lobbyist, which is one of the requirements to get a press pass today. You can say that you have to work for a mass medium that regularly would report on the White House, not somebody that's just going to drop in casually once and, and never come back. Those are content neutral, viewpoint neutral kind of distinctions, and they are permissible. But the minute a president or his press secretary starts denying media outlets access because of their type of reporting or the viewpoint of the reporting or their critical nature of the reporting, then you're running up against uh, significant First Amendment concerns. So theoretically, if if a news organization was blocked from a press conference or a gaggle or witnessed other news organizations getting preferential treatment in a way that seemed to violate one of these precedents that you just laid out, what what could be done? I mean, is this something a news organization could file a lawsuit or there's not really grounds for that? What what actions could be taken if if the perception is that an administration crosses a line? Well, I mean, the first step is always going to be you can protest, you can write a letter, you can ask the White House Correspondents Association to, to protest. Those are all possibilities. But if that doesn't work, then yes, I think a lawsuit is a possibility. As I said, uh, there have been precedents, although it hasn't gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, where uh, the question of a particular journalist or news organization being barred based on arbitrary criteria or ones that are based on viewpoint have been held to be unconstitutional. You know, right now what we have is something that seems particularly contentious to a lot of people observing. You know, the president has labeled the media a public enemy, called multiple publications failing or even failing piles of garbage. Have we seen anything similar to this in the past? You know, my favorite example is the presidency of Richard Nixon. Uh, Mr. Nixon uh, was notorious for creating, among other things, an enemies list, which included many prominent journalists. Um, There is no question that um, this was not just a case of somebody who just didn't like the press. He was seeking to uh, retaliate against the press in ways that he thought might, I presume, cow them into submission or deflect them from reporting on things he didn't want them to report about. I mean, he also just didn't like it, and he used a surrogate, uh, his vice president's Bureau Agnew, to use a lot of the rhetoric that sounds like what Donald Trump is saying today, basically referring to the press as what today we'd call elites who are out of touch with the silent majority. But 
it didn't end with Nixon. It didn't start with Nixon. I think in my experience, and, and I've been paying attention to this since the 1980s, no president is entirely happy with the coverage that he gets from the press. I think um, no matter which political party you're affiliated with, if you're president, there's going to come a point where you're going to get fed up with your press coverage. And it's really just a question to me of whether fundamentally, however annoying uh, the press may be, the president recognizes that they are a necessary part of keeping uh, the government accountable. It's been suggested that The Post, CNN, and The New York Times, among other publications, are at war with the administration. Do you think that's true? No, I I don't think it's true. And the best guideline I have on that is from the Washington Post's executive editor, Marty Barron, who has, in his quotable way, said, we're not at war with the administration, we are at work. And I think that's exactly right. The idea that you know, the Trump administration would like to set things up like this, that the media is the opposition party. They've said that a number of times. Steve Bannon, the president's chief strategist, has used that expression. It would be a mistake for us to put ourselves in that situation. We need we have a job to do, and we need to be doing it as, as hard and as well as we can. But it's not about being anyone's enemy, not the American people's enemy and not the president's enemy. In fact, we just need to do the job that that our Constitution lays out for us to do and do it well. And how do we prove to the readership, to the American public, that what we are doing is, in fact, seeking the truth and sharing the truth and reporting on real facts versus kind of Trump's administration storyline that, you know, this is fake news? Right. I don't know if we can prove it to everyone. I mean, some people have really come forward and said how important they think the role of journalists is right now. And you know this because subscriptions to some of the biggest news organizations, including the Post and the New York Times, have skyrocketed in recent weeks. So people really feel like, wow, you know, this is a job that needs to be done and we support you and we need you. And, you know, I tend to hear from a lot of readers, you know, please tell your colleagues, hang in there, do the job. We, you know, we need you. But of course, there is a segment of the population that believes that the news media is very biased and they don't trust us. And in fact, Trust in the news media is at a historic low point. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that when, when I look at the poll numbers, very often if people are asked about the media generally, yes, their trust is very low. But if you ask them about their news source, the source that they go to most often, then the trust is much higher. And that could be a local newspaper. It could be a national paper that they happen to feel comfortable with. Um, So it's not across the board. So one story that's directly related to this that I love that Jenna Johnson tells all the time is that reporters would go out into the crowd at a Trump rally. They'd meet people standing next to them in the crowd. People would be so excited to see them. They'd be like, oh, my gosh, a reporter from The Washington Post. Do you want to talk to me? You want to hear from me? That is cool. And then minutes later, you know, they'd sort of be pushed to a press sort of holding area. Mm -hmm. And people would be pointing at them and saying, boo, media, the news sucks. Right. That idea, I think, really represents what you just spoke to. An argument I think that a lot of people are trying to make is that we can alleviate some of the misunderstanding about the media if we open up 
open people up to the process of how it gets done. Do you think that's a good suggestion? I think the more transparency we can give people, the better. I mean, I think it's it's great to be able to sort of show your work. And the Post's own David Farenthold has done that really beautifully on social media. You know, he's made his reporting process public. And I, I do think that's very effective. I, I don't know that it's going to win over the people who are, you know, convinced that we're evil. Um, or being told and believing that that that's the case. So another thing that people often criticize the media for in this time of, of, of lots of people criticizing the media is that we're kind of playing into Trump's hand, that he's trying to distract us by a good example of this is, you know, last week the Jeff Sessions news broke that Jeff Sessions had met with the Russian ambassador and not been totally forthcoming during his confirmation hearings about it. Um, and, you know, on Saturday morning, Trump wakes up and accuses President Trump of having wiretapped Trump Tower. Right. And President the media, Obama. I'm sorry, President <laughs> Obama of having wiretapped, of course. So this is a situation where Trump really tries to pivot the story and get gets the media spun up about something else. Are we playing into his hand? Are we contributing to that? Well, for one thing, I and I've really given this a lot of thought. I'm not sure that that is a, a planned thing. I mean, I wonder about that. Is President Trump tweeting about former President Obama wiretapping him? Is that actually a planned distraction or is that something else that I can't quite figure out. You know, I think we have to cover that. This is the president of the United States. He's making some pretty outlandish comments. We cannot ignore that. It's a huge story. I don't think that every tweet has to be responded to like a five-alarm fire. You know, when he was tweeting about Hamilton and the vice president being at Hamilton and getting booed or whatever. I mean, that that I don't think is terribly important. But I think this, in this case, and in many other cases, this is how the president of the United States is choosing to communicate to the world. And we can't really turn away from it. Yeah. Josh Ernest, who's President Obama's former press secretary, he was interviewed at Harvard this week. And in that interview, he suggested that Trump benefits from the media just as much as the media benefits from Trump. I mean, there is some truth to that. What what do you make of, of that? Well, again, I go back to the campaign in which, you know, let's just take CNN. CNN knew because it's its chief executive, Jeff Zucker, had worked with Trump at NBC. He knew that Trump was, as Trump likes to say, a ratings machine and was able to drive ratings high at CNN. And so it worked for it worked for Donald Trump as a candidate to have all this free airtime. And it worked for CNN because people liked to watch him. And actually, uh, Les Moonves of CBS said, Donald Trump may not be good for the country, but he sure is good for us. And so there is that element that's that's worrisome and that doesn't really reflect the best values of uh, or, or the best ways that the fourth estate should be working. But, um, you know, it does seem to work for both parties it, to some extent. So speaking a little bit about how the press should be working, We've seen a lot of leaks come out of this White House at a pretty rapid pace early in his administration. What are the ethical obligations of the media when it comes to information that's being leaked? Well, we have to try to be as transparent as we can be with our readership or our viewership about who who are these people who are telling us things. And I've seen the Washington Post do this in various ways. Uh, For example, there was one important story in which 
the number of sources was given, nine different sources, and then as much explanation as you can give without breaking the confidentiality of the source. You know, give me a little bit more information so that I can judge for myself uh, whether I want to invest my um, credulity in this particular person. One misconception I think people often have about leaked information is that journalists, and you can speak to this, just kind of get this information and put it up. And people don't realize that it goes through, you know, layers of bureaucracy. It's conversations that are had between editors and reporters, sometimes for months, occasionally for years, Mm -hmm. where we look at materials and decide if they're valid. And we look at precedent and we look at national security. And we're not just publishing things regularly uh, without discretion. And I I just, I think that's absolutely right. right? That's absolutely right. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the things that's misunderstood about what happened when Edward Snowden made his one of the biggest leaks of all time was that it wasn't as if the Washington Post and the Guardian just took that information and and published it. There was a lot of discussion and even going to the U.S. government and saying, we have this, and what do you say about that? And tell us where national security might be affected. And okay, then we won't publish this part of it. It is actually a painstaking and quite careful process. And that's true now with the leaks that we're seeing coming out of the intelligence community and the White House, that they are not published willy-nilly, but rather considered quite carefully. And one thing I'd like to say about this whole dynamic is that there's no doubt that Donald Trump and his closest associates want to use the media as a foil. They want to have someone to object to. It works for them politically. And so that, I think, is one of the things that we're seeing play out over and over again. He doesn't really have a political opponent anymore because we're past the campaign. So now what? So the media then kind of moves up one step and becomes the the one factor that he can constantly kind of object to. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm going to bring this to a close and ask you the final question that we so often ask at the end of the show, which is essentially, can he do this? And in this case, it's, can he continue to be hostile to the media? Can he continue to sort of threaten to uproot decades or in some cases, centuries of historical tradition and precedent? Can he do this? I think he can. I think that he can do it and he will do it. Um, There may reach a point, a tipping point, um, when he goes too far. But for now, the ill will, the sort of antipathy between Donald Trump and the press, and actually I think that's in one direction, it's from Donald Trump to the press, I think is working for him. So yes, he can do this. You guys can follow Margaret Sullivan on Twitter. I highly recommend it. Her Twitter handle is Sullivieu, S-U-L-L-I-V-I-E-W. Or you can follow me, Allison Mikes, where I try to keep you guys updated throughout the week on all of the incremental things that we can't cover here on the show. And while you're at it, you can go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I know I've told you in the past that it would be fun. Some people have disagreed with that. I say give it a shot yourself and find out. Uh, It goes a long way. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And we can't wait to have you tune in next week. If you guys like learning about the way your government works, we've worked with Radio Public to create a really essential playlist that explains it. It's called Government 101. It has a great collection of podcasts. You'll feel really smart after you listen to all of them. You should go ahead and check it out on radiopublic.com or on their app, Radio Public. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It is produced by Carol Alderman. 
with extra help this week from Bridget Reed Morosky. Rachel Orr is our design director, and our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio. You can find more podcasts from The Post at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. If you liked Can He Do That, you might like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the real people behind today's biggest news. Or try Sequiza, Chris Eliza's weekly quiz show of news, entertainment, and news entertainment. You can find Cape Up, Sequiza, and more Post podcasts at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.